Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. So Mark, what are we going to talk about this month? Well, Pat, today we're going to talk about all things Bach. We're going to discuss the beer of the villagers of Einbeck and how it becomes the Bach of the royal household in Munich, how later a monastic nourishment becomes a luxury brew of Munich, and we'll take a trip out to Edison Brewery to talk to proprietor Will Schulze and brewmaster Victor Misovich, who came from Chicago to brew the beers I've enjoyed since the glory days of Hoster Brew Pub in the 90s. Excellent. And guess what else, Pat? More box. Weizenbach? Yes, Weizenbach. Weizen Eisbach? Yes, Eisbach. And we get a chance to enjoy a couple of homebrewed my box with our good friend Jamie Gentry, one of which we brewed ourselves. Well, let's go back through the mists of time a little bit and try and trace this style back to its origins, which is something that we've done in earlier episodes, right? Yeah, and I love the exercise of doing these deep dives. And I think it's so much fun and rewarding for us as well to get to really explore a style. I hope our listeners are enjoying, too, the exploration of these styles. I hope so. Where would we start the story of Bach, then? Well, Pat, our story begins in the Germanic village of Einbeck, whose first recorded history dates back to a land deed in January 1st, 1158. We're going way back. So Einbeck has a unique history in beer, and what makes them unique is that the citizens of Einbeck were entitled to malt their own grains. They can make beer in their own cellar, but they were not permitted to possess their own brew house. The brewing vessel was owned by the city, and the city council employed professional brewers who would take the brew kettle from home to home of those who wanted to brew. These houses had large arch entries so that the kettle could fit into the homes and, of course, cellars for cellaring. At one time, an arsonist burned down most of the residential buildings of Einbeck, but they rebuilt the town on the same cellars, including the arch entries to fit the city brew house. Yeah, I mean, I, if you think about it today, of course, if I wanted to have a 50-gallon kettle or whatever, I suppose I could go to a restaurant supply store and, and I could purchase one. But back in those days, that would have been no small thing to have the kind of equipment to brew a sort of larger batch of beer. Well, you can still find these arches in some of the old timbered buildings in Einbeck today. So the brewmaster, being a civil servant to the city, had to check the malt, oversee the actual brewing process, and later, after cellared, would certify the finished product. Any cast of unacceptable beer would be destroyed as a means of yeast management. Okay. Yeah, because, of course, yeast would have been not something that they bought from a lab, for sure. It would have been something that would be, uh, I mean, they didn't even know exactly what yeast was back in those days, right? Yeah, they really wouldn't have. So this quality assurance and supervision of the brewing was giving the town quite a reputation of producing some tasty brews. So in 1356, the Hanseatic League was formed to protect merchants and traders in the region so that the merchants wouldn't get robbed and have nothing to do about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
that if you've seen the movie Robin Hood or anything like that, you know that there's some some dangers in sending your goods out uh, to be transported to another place, right? Exactly. That's why in 1368, Einbeck joins this league and was able to get their excess beer exported across the region. Well, the Hanseatic League is a pretty famous thing in the development of, let's say, economics, right? I think it stretched from Belgium and modern-day Netherlands in the west all the way up to Latvia and the Baltics in the east, went up into Sweden and went down into Bavaria. So if you are a member of the Hanseatic League, then that would be a good way to develop a reputation. Absolutely. And a reputation was exactly what they had. Einbeck was known for great beer. Now, I did, in preparing for this podcast, uh, consult uh, Jeff Allworth's beer Bible to see what he had to say about the Einbeck beer, because really we can't taste what Einbeck beer would have tasted like all those centuries ago. And, and the description that is given in there is thin, subtle, clear, and bitter with a pleasant acidity on the tongue. Doesn't sound bad. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound bad, but it sounds more like a Gosa than it does like a Buck. So how did it get to Bavaria, and how did it become a lager? Well, this beer traveled overland towards the end of the 15th century and reached courts of the Wittelbachs. Now, these are the people responsible for the Rheinheitsgebot, if I'm not mistaken. 100% correct. Those were the rulers of Bavaria in Munich. So they took beer seriously. Yeah, they took their beer so seriously that they made the Rheinheitsgebot beer purity law to try to improve the quality of Munich's beers. Success was eluding them, however, and uh, this Einbecker beer was getting quite a notable reputation. In notable drinkers, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the German. Not that's correct. Martin Luther King, just so everyone's clear on that. Martin Luther, the German, who started the Reformation, was also, um, he liked beer, right? And as I understand it, his wife was a very accomplished brewer. Yes, indeed. So Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, was reportedly given a cask of this beer before the 1521 trial at the Diet of Worms. And he praised the beer, saying, the best drink known to man is Einbecker beer. That's high praise. Okay, so we've established that the Einbeck beer was very popular throughout modern-day Germany and, and much of Europe. But how did it become associated with the city of Munich and with Bavaria? Well, 16th century Bavaria was not yet known as a beer-drinking nation. Most drank wine and imported beer from northern Germany. This imported beer was expensive, and the rulers of Bavaria were always thirsty, Pat. So Hofbrauhaus, you may be familiar with this name, a Munich brewery was built by the royal household and established in 1592. They wanted to make good beer right there in their own town. From what I understand, they tried to crack the code, right? They, and they took a long time, and they unsuccessfully, they could never really make a beer that, that was like the Einbeck beer, or as good as the Einbeck beer, right? Well, not necessarily as good as the Einbeck beer, until Duke Maximilian recruited help from an Einbeck brewer by the name of Elias Pitchler. So in 1614, brews the first Munich Maybach. So the translation of that would have been May Goat. Is, that, is my German correct in that? That's not that bad, yeah. <laughs> okay. Was it a hit? 
<laughs> yeah, it was a hit, all right. As a matter of fact, their Maybach was such a hit that when the Swedish army occupied the town in 1632 during the Thirty Years' War, they were spared from being burned to the ground due to paying off the Swedes to the tune of 344 pails of Maybach beer brewed in their Hofbrauhaus brewery. Well, if you were ever invaded by Sweden, I guess we know the proper defense strategy now. Give them a bunch of Maybach. <laughs> Yeah. So not long after that, Munich, whose name means by the monks, has something bigger brewing, the Doppelbach. Time to up the ante a little bit, I'd say. Uh, considerably. So what is a Doppelbach? Is it just Bach times two? Not specifically, but I guess in direct translation, it could be. It's double Bach. Right. It is stronger. It is uh, higher in ABV. Probably in its time, the biggest defining thing was it was stronger in starting gravity. That's right. That basically takes us to the origin story of the Doppelbach style, and that would be the monks of Munich, right? That's correct. So at some point in time, the followers of St. Francis of Paolo, the Polliner friars. What's the difference between a monk and a friar, by the way? So that's an interesting part of this story that I didn't really know one way or the other. A friar is a follower of the minimum order okay. that lives amongst the people. All right. Which is not like what a, you would think of when you normally think of a monk. Because a monk is more secluded to the monastery. So it would be a man of God who is embedded in the community. That's right. And regardless... Actually, not only did they fast, they were strict vegetarian. This beer, as a means of sustenance, was brewed at a much higher gravity, but it didn't finish out. I think the attenuation on this was probably only 50% from what I've read. Yeah, that's what I've read too. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine a beer like that with the starting gravity that might be 1080 and a finishing gravity that would be like 1040. I mean, wow, that would be so sweet, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, later on in the episode, we're going to talk about this Maybach homebrew that we did. And, uh, you know, I remember I tasted the beer as it was fermenting after about a week, and it was at about 1040. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's good in the quantity of an ounce or two, but uh, yeah, pretty sweet. Yeah, absolutely. So, in 1634, the Polliner friars began brewing in Munich with permission of the Duke of Bavaria, initially for their use. April 2nd, 1651, they had a celebratory feast, the Feast of St. Paulo, and they served this Sanct Vater's beer, which translates as Beer of the Sacred Father, and they also served it to local citizens. It yep. went over well. From what I've read, uh, it was like a big festival that a lot of people went to. If we were alive in Munich in this time, I would imagine both of us would go back to this party. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I guess that means that the beer must have been pretty tasty. I mean, it's not just because you're fasting that you want it. Because all the people who came to the festival were presumably not adhering to the strict order of the St. Benedict. By 1780, they were selling this beer under the name Salvatore. Okay, so, but at some point, like the monastery basically ceased to exist, right? 
So this would have been in 1799 as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. And secularism wipes out the monastery. Okay. So why didn't the brewery die at the same time? It did, actually. The monastery was closed. Their brewery was closed. I think it went to the city for a short while. I mean, today, Polliner Brewery exists. We could go down to the store and, and pick up a six-pack of Salvatore today. To this day. So thanks to Franz Xavier Zacherl, who in 1806 then, which would have been seven years later, leased the brewery and reopened it. In 1813, he bought the brewery outright and was granted the right to sell Salvatore at a higher rate than officially regulated rate for other beers in the area. Okay, so this was considered a premium beer. As we drink this now, I consider it a premium beer. This Doppelbach is wonderful. Oh, you know, it's a great style and somewhat surprisingly, actually much easier to find German examples of the Doppelbach than it is of the Bach. Right. So at the moment, we're drinking Eyinger's Celebrator Doppelbach, oftentimes hailed as, as one of the, the best beers in the world. It's decidedly different from Salvatore. I think there's a little more body to this and maybe a creaminess. Yeah, I think one difference is in this beer is just a little darker and I get a little bit of chocolate, mm -hmm. whereas in the Salvatore, it would lean a little bit more in the caramel vein. I would agree. Kind of caramel and dark fruits. Uh, they're both delicious beers, though. And I think what, for me, makes them such good beers is that they are, at the same time, decadent, rich. You know, they've got that sugar sweetness, but also then drinkable. You know, surprisingly dry for such a big, sweet, strong beer uh, in a way that let's say, less accomplished brewers who try and make the style sometimes don't quite pull off. And so they, they come across too cloying. Yeah, I'm pretty clean in the finish, like as it relates to the fermentation. Like it's a very, it's definitely an extremely lagered beer. Yeah. And you get a little goat thing that comes on a string wrapped around the neck when you buy this beer, right? I'll tell you, it's just like a Cracker Jack prize. Indeed, I have these little goats hanging at various places all over my house, actually. <laughs> I sort of have a hard time throwing them away, if I'm honest. <laughs> hey, you got to collect something, right? Exactly. Was the Zacharo Brewery, which later became Polliner again. That's right. Were they the only ones who made uh, Doppelbox? No, actually, by 1840, there were in excess of 30 breweries brewing this Salvatore beer. One side of the story could be that Salvatore beer was now just basically a style amongst the town brought to us thanks to the Polliner monks that now have no monastery. <laughs> right. So in some ways, you might say that you had the Bach style, which we talked about earlier in the show, and then you had the Salvatore style. Now, there's another side of this story, and this one more favors Franz. He had revived this brewery and is now making the Salvatore beer, and everybody's making a knockoff. So he says, no, only I get to call my beer Salvatore. Either way, that was the suit he filed. And eventually, he prevailed, right? He did prevail. It took quite a few years. Uh, sadly, he never lived to see it come to fruition. Did he commit suicide? Am I correct in remembering <laughs> he that? He did. He did in 1849. He kills himself 
But because he had no kids, he had no one to be the heir to the brewery, it ends up in the hands of his nephews, the Schmetterer brothers. Now they have the business, and they did get the rights, thanks to this suit that he had filed to name the beer Salvatore. So what did this mean for everyone else? So they couldn't call their beer Salvatore anymore. They had to call it something else. All they got was the last four letters. So that's why every Doppelbach you see, it is tradition. Everything has to end in A-T-O-R. That's the naming convention that came from this tradition and the fact that Zacherl decided he gets to keep the name. You know, we're drinking a Celebrator right Mm -hmm. now, right? I think another famous one from Germany is uh, the Spaten beer. Is that called Optimator? Optimator. And then, and then of course, there's a whole bunch of uh, American versions. Right now, you're wearing the T-shirt, the Troganator. It's, I thought it would be an apropos shirt to wear, although the visual only relates to us. It's not so great for radio. Yeah. It's Right, but the Troganator. So you get the deal. Uh, well, here locally, Wils Ridge makes one. What is the Wils Ridge one called? Sustainator, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's one called Consecrator. Uh, I don't know. Is there one called Alligator? It, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Down in Florida, they must drink a Doppelbox every once in a while. So that's that's basically the story of Doppelbach then. That's it. So yeah, I'll tell you, this is a story-heavy podcast. Now, I think it's time to just drink some beers for a while. So what we're going to do, Pat, is take a road trip. Okay, I'm down for that. Where are we going? We're heading out to Edison, where we have become particularly smitten with their Bach. I can say with great confidence of the beers I've tried for the very first time in 2021, this would be my favorite. And let's just be honest, to get the standard strength Bach from Germany is no easy task in Columbus, Ohio. So here we are up at the Edison Brewing Company. And we've got here Will Scholza, and he is new on the scene with Edison Brewing, and of course, longtime favorite, Victor Isimovich III. How you doing, man? Doing quite well. Good to have you guys here. Thanks for inviting us. Maybe we might start. You could just tell us a little bit about Edison. Sure thing. I've been in business uh, here in Gahanna for over 15 years, and and one of the, the aspects of my businesses was to attract employees and retain employees. And so when I was um, running out of room and space for my offices, I, I looked at a location to build a new building. And Gehanna had this site up here. And, and, you know, once you come here and you see the site, you, you can quickly capture why you'd want to make this site special. Having uh, obtained this location, one of the ideas I had was to incorporate a brewery into it. Uh, having gone to Germany multiple times and drank a lot of local regional fresh beers. And, you know, I just felt one aspect of the industry was not focusing on traditional beers, not trying to get into creating the new thing, but stick with the old thing. Start looking into um, how to set this up. And I uh, came across Victor Asimovich the third. And me and Victor uh, got a chance to talk, and Victor was uh, willing to help consult with me to, to set my brewery up. And so the long story short there is after working with architects, planning the, the layout, came time to start working on a brewmaster, and that's where I was able to convince Victor to stick on with me. So that all happened in about a flash of 2017 till we opened in August of 2020. As someone that's been in Columbus 52 years... I can tell you that I have had 
quite a bit of Victor's beers over the years and does my heart a lot of good to know that you are behind the helm here. And we are lovers of classic styles. And I know that that is hard to find these days. Used to be the more extreme things were more unique. And now it's just hops, 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 hops. And here we are drinking classic German styles up here in Gehanna. Pretty cool. (laughs) Thank you. I've always been kind of a traditionalist. You know, when it comes to beer styles, craft brewers in North America, they, they make a lot of styles, but they seem to want to take everything to 11. And I, I wanted to get back to when I first started tasting imported beers, the ones that I really liked. I try to make the Germanic beers or any of the styles more like the traditional. Same with our ales. You know, it's a British style pale ale. It's a British style porter uh, as opposed to, you know, the more over-the-top things that a lot of domestic breweries do, which is nothing wrong with that, what they're doing, but I like the more traditional stuff, you know. It's a breath of fresh air in a market that's really IPA-heavy. You don't want to lose these classic styles. It's nothing against the new, but it sure is awesome to embrace the heritage, and that's why we wanted to kind of do a podcast exploring box. So you guys actually have three box on today, which we came out here earlier in the year and fell in love with Willie Goat right off the bat. And of course, the Doppelbach enjoyed that as well, but not so many because it's a drive for us to come to Gehanna from Clintonville. And also, we've got a Maybach on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about all three beers and what went into brewing them, if you've got anything you want to share history-wise on them or your take on them. I remember the Captivator parties very well, and I think... uh, Sure is cool to have a Doppelbach brewed by you, Victor. Yeah, it was, it was fun to do again. It's been a yeah. long time. Well, the, the Doppelbach is, you know, my take on a traditional German Doppelbach. Uh, probably my favorite is Celebrator. There's, you know, some other good, really, really good ones out there. Polander makes a good one. And, and I, I change that formula pretty much every year. I always have. There's a lot of brown malts in there, Munich's, and some other toasty colored malts in there just a dash of caramel going for that good dark malty flavor and getting that intense barley wineish kind of character in a lager you know my bach is of course it's may bach beer uh, it's a blonde bach uh, also very strong when we made the my bach at hoster people misjudged it uh, they would drink it like it was just pilsner and we, I, we never had more fights at Hoster than when the Maybach was on because people would just get blotto too fast on it. The Willie Goat Bach is, we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, about the original Bach was Einbecker's Urbach, which is slightly paler than ours, but it's uh, reminiscent of Bach beers that uh, were still available in Chicago when I started tasting imported beers and also some of the regional Bach beers that were still around in the early 80s from like Wisconsin, Minnesota, and you know, parts of Illinois. So that's my take on it. It's a malty beer. It's a lot of Munich malt in there and just enough hops, hopefully, to give you a little dry finish and keep it from being too sweet, too cloying. If you remember, what are the ABVs on these three beers? That's one way you might think about them. And it might be wise if you were just a punter showing up and, and drinking a pint after pint. Yeah, the Doppel is, uh, I think it's about 8, 8%. The Maybach is 7.1. And the Willy Goat comes in at about 4 or 5. 
Okay. So, well, that's that's mm-hmm. nice. It's kind of hard to find traditional box. You know, you can find like Celebrator and yeah. uh, you know the Polliner, uh, the Salvatore. You can find those Doppel box, but yeah. just box from Germany are pretty rare, aren't they? I haven't seen Einbeck in years. The other ones, it's been decades. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and as, as you said earlier, even in Germany, you don't see them a lot. <laughs> Talking about the way you approach uh, these kinds of German beers, how did you get into German styles of beer, other than you know what you were drinking in Chicago? Uh... As we said earlier, my first job was at Millstream Brewing Company in Amana, Iowa, when I graduated from Siebel. And Amana is a Germanic heritage town, and they get a lot of tourists that way. So the people who set up the brewery wanted a super traditional brewery. So I was very fortunate to go from Siebel to a brewery uh, that would have been set up for the owners by two uh, old brewmasters from the Midwest. In keeping with the idea of a, a traditional German brewery, uh, we croissant all our beers and we naturally carbonated all our beers. We had uh, no jacketed tanks. We had a dedicated fermentation cellar and a dedicated lagering wow. cellar. So I was super fortunate as a, a young brewer to learn all these old world techniques for making these beers. And I took that with me and, you know, I've incorporated it into my beers ever since because I think it, it, it really makes a better beer if you can do things that way. Right. And you were saying that here you use some of those techniques as well, like natural carbonation. Yeah. And all our beers pre- are 100% naturally carbonated. I haven't croisin anything yet. Maybe you could explain, because not everybody who's listening will even know what we're talking about. What do we mean when we talk about a naturally carbonated beer? Well, a lot of breweries don't understand natural carbonation, and or it's too tricky for them when it, as far as moving the beer around, because you have to have the beer under pressure. By naturally carbonating, it means that at some point during the fermentation, we seal up the tank, and the CO2 no longer escapes. It now goes into solution. And I have valves on every tank called Spundig valves. They're adjustable pressure relief valves. So I can dial in the uh, head pressure on the tank to retain the appropriate amount of carbon dioxide that is for that particular beer. So, for instance, a Pilsner, that's going to be a higher level of CO2. Pale Ale is going to be much lower. With these Spundig valves, you can dial it in. And then approximately a week before I filter, I'll start zombing, you know, every day, continually adjusting that till it gets to the spec point. And that way I don't have to do any polished carbonation in the bright beer tanks. It's a fun way to dial it in, and I think natural carbonation is its kind of a lost art in today's brewing. Yeah, and it surprises me that more people don't do it because, number one, I buy way less CO2 almost nothing for the brewery and number two when you when you artificially carbonate part of that process is scrubbing out flavor and aroma compounds from the beer well i'm trapping all that in so i like to think that gives our beers a little better character than some beers that are artificially carbonated yeah definitely so tell us a little bit about the doppelbach because this is something that i've drank brewed by you for quite some time, uh, back into the 90s. Is it the same recipe here? Have you tweaked over the years? At Hoster, I made it a little different every year. Or maybe I'd get the grains from a different maltster to try to differentiate them a little bit. In formulating this Doppelbach, I definitely look back on the formulas from Hoster 
And uh, unfortunately, some of my favorite malts that I used back then aren't available anymore. So I had to kind of make some substitutions. I was pleased with the beer. I hope next year will be better. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Trying to get those uh, malts that I can't get any more substituted for was a little bit of a hit and miss, you know. That brings me to a question, given how important malts are to the German styles that we're talking about, what are your preferred you know, base malts and things like that? For our base lager malt, we've been using a malt from Origin okay. Malting, who are Marysville-based. They're currently contracting their malting. I think it's Canada and Great Western making the malt for them. We like to try to support local if we can. Those people have come in a lot and are becoming good friends. So, and they're building a facility out in Marysville right now, or well, not now. Hopefully, break ground in the next four four months or so. Oh, that'd be good. Um, so, for lagers, that's that's the base malt, the pale lager malt. The uh, specialty malts are mostly from Germany, Great Britain. I've got some Belgian and some French malts also uh, that I use. I'm trying to be authentic. Kind of the same with the hops too. All uh, all the lager hops are, are German hops. You know, so it's Hallertau Mittelfru, uh, Hersbrucker, bittering with Hallertau Magnum. All all from Germany. British hops are are all East Kent Goldings, uh, Fuggle, traditional hops from there. That's it's hard to improve on those hops for those styles of beer. It's yeah. just hard to imagine you can do better, really. Yeah, and yeah. and a lot of those varieties they're they're not the same when they're grown in the U.S. So, so for this range of box that you have here, from the uh, the Willy Goat to the Maybach to the Doppelbach, are the base malts basically Pilsner and Munich in different proportions, or are there other base malts that you think would be good for those styles? For for what percentage of base malt lager malt, you know, you just use a good good lager malt. Beers with more color, like the Doppel and the Willy Goat, actually have very little base malt in them. Pale lager malt because there's so many colored malts in there, and I can get away with that because a lot of these colored malts they still have a sufficient enzymatic power to do the, the conversion process. For instance, you know, Vienna's and Munich's, things like that. You know, I can get away with that and get the flavor and intensity I want and still get a good conversion in the mash ton. For the Maybach, being a Blondbach, that's 90% base malt, just a high percentage of it to get the strength that we need. Will, what is your favorite style of Bach that we've got here today? I mean, you've got your choice. You've got pretty much the gamut other than Weissenbach and Eisbach uh, with three Bachs to choose from. I typically stick with the Willy Goat, the basic Bach. I love the Zenerator, Doppelbach, and the Maybach. They're very good. It's just as you know when you're at a brewery all day long and you're here, you try not to drink too many beers so I tend to have to watch myself a little bit when I drink the other ones oh absolutely so I, uh, I know this quite well <laughs> yeah. the Maybach and the, the Dop Box are just gives you a chance to talk to people about what the flavors are we also even took the Maybach and made a keg of Keller beer of it too so we have the Keller version of it oh cool so that we can not only explain the difference between the box but we also can add the Keller we can say there's four options here that taste and explain all four options and what they're like that's another nice thing about the way uh, Victor does his brewing is is we can siphon off a little keg of Keller here and there of certain lagers and, and share the education with people. Well, cool. Thanks so much for having us out. If you don't live in the Gahanna area and aren't already aware, come on out to Gahanna and check out some of these classic styles out here.
Okay, Pat. So another type of Bach, the Weizenbach. That's right. Weizen meaning wheat and Bach meaning strong. In front of us here, a Schneiderweiss Aventinus Weizen Doppelbach. The original wheat Doppelbach, as I understand. I think since 1907. That's a long time. This is, uh, man, just the nose on this. It's just rich right off the bat. It's almost like dessert. It's like raisin and molasses, almost like a bread pudding in front of you. Yeah, you're really struck by the kind of caramel and chocolate and Mm -hmm. richness. Not a ton of banana in the nose, surprisingly, for... uh, I would say not, but at the same time, a little yeasty, would you say? Yeah, yeah. No, you do get some Hefeweizen-type yeast character coming through, but then with those darker malts, it really makes for a decadent, rich combination. It amplifies the fruitiness. I mean, those esters, I don't know, maybe on a second whiff, I'm starting to maybe get a touch of banana in my bread pudding. Well, I think the Schneider vices tend to be not the total banana bombs that some Hefeweizens can be. So a little bit more balanced with the clove banana. Even in and of the rest of their products, right? Exactly. And I think that comes through here. And then you add that layer of richness that comes with the Doppelbach kind of on on top of that. And uh, man, pretty good. Oh, pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, if you're looking for a decadent treat after dinner sometime, this is a winner. Hell, even on a Sunday afternoon, it's not bad. As you know, several years ago for the blog, I thought it might be a good idea if I tried to do what I called a beer fast during Lent. So I went four days where my only sustenance was beer and water. And it was hard. I'm not going to lie. And when I got to day three, you know, I was pretty sick of beer. And I had one of these. I took a bath and I opened, well, I think it was a barrel-aged Aventinus. And oh, it just tasted so beautiful. And you can kind of see why, because there's just a richness to it. There's a sustenance that goes, you know, kind of beyond your average beer in this thing. Oh, man, it is rich. And speaking of rich, isn't that the story, Pat, that wheat would have only been for the rich at some time? Well, in fact, now we're talking around the time of the Reinheitsgebot, so let's say four or 500 years ago, wheat was meant to be used in bread. But as we know, you can make a pretty good beer with wheat. So to solve that dilemma, what the Bavarian royal family decided is like nobody else can make beer with wheat except them and the people who are licensed by them. So it just so happened that wheat beer became kind of a thing for the upper classes. This is a fairly bright beer for a wheat beer, kind of a rich ruby brown, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Dark copper ruby kind of color. Good clarity when you hold it up to the light, but it is a pretty dark beer. It's a bottle conditioned beer. So I I took the last of it and I got a little bit in the bottom of my glass, but it's an attractive beer. Oh man, for those of you that like hazy beers, just get Pat's last pour. I'm just going for the vitamin B, you know, the extra vitamin B. (laughs) Well, cool. I mean, I actually find this to be more in the vein of the Salvatore than a wheat beer, even though I get the yeast character and maybe the little thicker mouthfeel on this. But that residual sweetness is very much like the Salvatore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So this is really, as you say, a Doppelbach, but with the accents that you get with a Weiss beer, 
of the, you know, little banana, little clove. But those are really in the background. Mm-hmm. It is probably worth noting that Schneider is a very important brewery in the history of wheat beers or vice beers. So we talked about how, you know, the royal family had the only license and they were very popular in Bavaria, but then their popularity waned. And so this brewery was founded in the 19th century. I think they're 170 years old. And when they started, there was not very many wheat beers. So they kind of took a chance that they could bring this style back. And uh, so if you want something authentic in the Weiss beer style, I, I would highly recommend their beers. Well, while we're at Schneider Weiss, we might as well knock out another style of Bach. That would be the Schneider Eisbach. The Eisbach. This is uh, notably darker, and I would dare to say not quite as brilliant as the last. This has got a little haze just from the first pour in a chill haze look. Well, that's funny that an icebox would have a chill haze. But up, up. <laughs> but what do we mean when we say icebox? Just in general, how do you get to an icebox? From my understanding, this would have been frozen to some degree, and the water removed in that way. So. Almost like a freezer distillation. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good way to put it. Putting a chemist's spin on it, water freezes at a higher temperature than ethanol. And so if you keep freezing things, the solid part is going to have more water and the liquid part is going to have more ethanol. So you keep doing that over and over again and you're going to get a pretty strong kind of beer. An icebox. An icebox. Man, this is uh, just about as rich as the last. What's ABV on this puppy? The ABV on this is 12%. This is also Holotower Hercules, like the last. And it, it says wheat malt and barley malt on their website. So it could very well be just the freeze-distilled version of their Weissendabelbach. Of the Aventinas. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think this style, Eisbach, is one that's kind of a happy accident. You know, somebody left a cask or a keg of beer sitting out and, you know, it gets cold in the mountains of Bavaria and it froze. And um, I don't know, someone had the state of mind to say, let's just pour off the liquid part and leave the solid part behind. And and that's how we got Icebox. You know, that's a common happy accident when we bring beer home and want to drink it too fast, too bad. <laughs> don't you hate that? <laughs> Leave it in the freezer, beer. Don't you hate being leaving in the freezer, guy? <laughs> yeah, I have done that a few times, and it uh, it always makes you feel stupid, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or at least lacking in memory capabilities. <laughs> and I guess the warm beer must have been good enough because you got through that before you forgot that you put in a beer in the freezer, right? Isn't that the truth? <laughs> well, this is pretty good. I mean, it... In some ways, it's a little more intense, and in other ways, it's a tad bit smoother to me. And I don't know if there's some age involved in this process that might calm it down a bit, but I don't find it quite as sweet as the last one. Do you, Pat? It's different, isn't it? I think it's maybe the higher alcohol balances Mm -hmm. the sweetness a little bit. That would be my guess. That's probably right. I mean, it's still pretty decadent, I have to say. Oh, yeah. But it drinks pretty easy for uh you know the big beer that it is indeed but as you noted the alcohol is evident 
Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that counterbalances some of the sweetness to some extent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, after this beer, where do you go, right? This is kind of like you hit 11 on the amp scale once you get to the ice Weizenbach, Dopp- <laughs> the ice <laughs> Weizenbach Doppelbach or whatever this is, you know. Yeah, indeed. I'll tell you where we go next. We homebrew a Maybach. Yeah, you got to come down a little bit. It's kind of like, uh, you know, coming in for the landing on a, maybe a 7.5% beer. For sure. Well, we'd like to wrap up this show with a segment on homebrewing box. And today we're really fortunate to have our good friend Jamie Gentry to talk about box. Both Jamie and Mark and I have brewed a Maybach this spring, and so we're enjoying those right now. We're going to talk a little bit about that process. And also, a couple of years ago, Jamie, am I correct in saying that you did take home some hardware from the Ohio State Fair with your Dunkelsbach? Yeah, I think it's uh, apparent by the metal on my chest uh, right now. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 yeah. Uh, for such the, a proud fellow. Such yeah. a proud fellow. You know, I, I've i never won anything like this before, so it uh, holds a special place in my heart. It's no small feat to medal at the Ohio State <laughs> Fair because there, there's a lot of entries in that, so... Um, Kudos to you. A friend that was kind of giving me a hard time about it and saying, well, you, you know, you entered a category where there wasn't a lot of uh, beers. And I said, well, you know, technically, if you put it that way, there was no other box in the competition. So technically, it's the number one box in the state of Ohio. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> That's right, because it was in something like the European multi-loggers. Or yeah, it was like dark logger category or something. So it was uh, it was a great experience. They do a great job. And, and now we're two years without it. I'm, yeah. I'm really bummed. So that, that really does suck. Yeah. While we're talking about that, then what would be the different approach to brewing a Maybach versus the Dunkelsbach? Personally, with my recipe, you know, pulling out a lot of the Carafa and the Caramunic malts that, that really add that dark color. You know, I really went just more base grains kept with the Munich because I feel like Munich is a grain that should be a base of any type of Bach yeah. style beer. No dark Munich, just uh, some Pilsner Munich, and I think even some Maris Otter to try and lighten it up a little bit. For our Maybach, we also stuck pretty close to what you would call the base grains, and I think we are using 80% of the grist is pale ale malt from our friend Matt Cunningham at uh, Rustic Brew Farms, and then it was about 20% Munich to give it some color, and also, you know, Munich just adds such a maltiness to a beer that is is really great in a lager. Yeah, riching it up, really nice. I tend to use probably more Munich just because I'd, I'm brewing for myself and I really like a malty beer. So I'm trying to go after that as much as I can. It might turn some people off. It's not maybe not as balanced, but uh, I, I really enjoy that. I'm really all about trying to get most of your flavor from the base malts. And so, you know, Munich is hard to beat. It, it is true that yours is just a shade darker than ours, mm-hmm. but really very much in, in the same family, I would say. If I'm going to brew another Maybach, I might try to lighten it up a little bit. And maybe go on the lower end of the gravity spectrum for a traditional Maybach just to make it a, a touch more sessionable. Well, I think both of us kind of overshot our target gravity a little bit. I think our yeah. original gravity was 1076, if I remember correctly. And is that, is that we were 75. It? Okay. So, yeah, which are both just, just a little bit north of the guidelines yep. on that. But I don't know, for being, you know, these are seven and a half to 8% beers, I wouldn't say they have a lot of bite to them. No, no, not at all. Pretty drinkable. Any decoction mashing? Did you do any decoctants on yours? Nope. It was just a just a straight mash. Um, 
I, I've, I would love to try decoction mashing. I uh, just haven't had the, the guts to dive in and try it. So Yeah, I mean, it's relatively easy. And Pat and I brought our temperature up twice uh, using a decoction. And all you are is pulling away some of your mash into a side pot and just boiling it, basically, which richens it up a little mm-hmm. bit. And then reintroducing that brings your temperature up on the rest of your mash pot. Did you time it or did you just bring it to a boil and then add it back? How did that well, process I think, work? You, you know, one question is if you're pulling a decoction mash very early, mm-hmm. like if you started at a protein rest, you might want to bring the decoction up to 150 or so and let a little bit of conversion happen before you go on up. Mm-hmm. But I think we started at, uh, you know, 145 or something like that. And so then really after about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I don't remember exactly, we pulled about a third of the mash out and then just heated it up to boiling and let it boil for 10 minutes probably and then add it back in and then we waited maybe another 20 minutes and we did the same thing and both times we got a jump of i'm going to say six to eight degrees fahrenheit okay mm-hmm. so it's it's actually pr- pretty straightforward not not so difficult to do were they thick mashes that you were taking out or was it more the the thinner it side was fairly it? thick i mean we tried to get more liquid than not but okay it was a little difficult with the density of of our mash to really make the decision to leave too many grains behind yeah it's a bit of a balance i mean we were trying to keep it thick but on the other hand i mean there's not enough liquid in there just like pouring like cooked oatmeal into a hot pan which uh that's probably leads to a little bit more scorching and burning and caramelization than you want on the thicker side but still visibly a liquid i would say i I, the the flavor is great i think it was well worth the effort did it make for a long brew day I oftentimes do a step mash like that anyway. And so what I would normally do is I would just take some of my sparge water and do the same thing, bring it up to boiling and add it in. So it wasn't that much longer than normal. Okay. Uh, it was probably six hour brew day or something like that with some, well, we were drinking a little bit along the way. And, uh, I would say at some point we lost track of time. So <laughs> don't ask us exactly it's all relative when we stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what type of yeast did you use? So we use the Omega... Bach yeast. Okay. As I understand it, comes from Iyengar. And then what about you, Jamie? What yeast did you use? You know, I, I stick with the White Labs uh, German Bach yeast. I don't I don't think I've brewed any box without that yeast. I, I, I really like it. It performs well, and I'm hesitant to change. I probably should at some point, but it, it's produced some really nice beers. I don't see that you have a good reason to change. I mean, it's working for you. Yeah. It's called a Bach yeast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and White Labs have been doing this for a long time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. I think the extra Munich that you use gives it just a, a little added maltiness, just a level or two above ours. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's more of a personal preference of trying to amp that up. wonder if that's what gives it a little bit of a darker color as well. So, so I'm sacrificing that lighter color for the more malty flavor, but... Now let's uh, talk about the fermentation because I have, have not made all that many lagers, a handful over the years. And it was only maybe a year ago that I got a chest freezer that allows mm-hmm. you to really do it properly. When you read on the literature, there's different debates. Do you want to pitch cold below the fermentation mm-hmm. temperature, let it warm, or do you want to pitch, say, warmer and then, and then bring it down to the fermentation temperature? How do you approach that, Jamie? I typically pitch a bit warmer. Part of that's just expediency of, uh, trying to wrap up the brew day. I can chill down usually to, you know, the, the mid to lower 60s. I, I think it's been adequate. I see activity within 12 to 24 hours. 
That's what we did. I think we mm-hmm. must have pitched it around 65 mm-hmm. and then put it in the chest freezer set for 50 and yep. let it come down. And it got to 50 by sometime the next day. Did you hold that temperature? Did you, you know, bump it up towards the end of fermentation? To So, so I left it kind of at 50 to 52 for uh, most of the time. But then when I got down to maybe 1025 gravity, and I think it finished at 1017, but I didn't know exactly where it was going to finish. I actually took it out of the chest freezer and I let it come up to about 60 or so. And I kept it at 60 for a day and a half or something okay. like that. And then I put it back in and then I cooled it to 55. And then I just stepped down one degree per day to 40 uh, over a course of maybe two weeks. That sounds about like the, the plans that I typically do. Um, you know, it depends on the activity. Number of loggers I've done, they, they seem to ferment out in about 12 to 14 days. Um, usually by that 10th or 12th day, you know, I start really watching it. Um, maybe take a reading, but a lot of it's just watching the activity and, you know, seeing if there's a crowds in or not. And then I start bumping that temperature up. I was uh, doing a tour somewhere. It might've been Pilsner Kale. And they were saying that, you know, what they count for is one day primary fermentation per degree Plato. Ours was 1076. That means that's 19 Plato on the order of close to three weeks uh, yeah. in the fermentation. Sometimes people, when they get, they say, okay, now I'm done fermenting. Then and just like, Let's drop it down to, you know, freezing. If you can do it, I think it's probably better to go slow because the whole point of lagering in some ways is the yeast keeps doing some work for yeah. you, taking up the things you don't want in there. Did you keep it in the, the primary fermentation vessel or did you move it over to a secondary? I kept it in a primary fermentation vessel until I got to this 40 degrees. So this is probably three and a half weeks okay. in. Then I transferred over to a keg. And then I carbonated, and then I dropped it down to about 36, and it's okay. been there for about three weeks now at that temperature. Okay. Especially when it comes to lighter lagers, I've been moving it off the yeast once once everything drops out into secondary fermentation and then, and then lagering in that, you know, really trying to, to help with the clarity. Do you do the secondary in another carboy or fermenter or yeah. do you go into the keg no i've been doing another another fermenter you know typically something i can take some readings off of, well not really readings just tasting it mm. so <laughs> readings yeah <laughs> yeah those are those are my kind of readings but you know i previously mentioned i try to shoot for between four and six weeks of lagering at that point i just go off taste and what what i'm shooting for well one thing is when you put it into a keg of course you can also take readings off of that, so to speak, readings. Yeah. yeah. I always want to do whatever I can to limit oxidation. And so if I can have fewer transfers, I like that. That's definitely something I'm trying to work on in my process. I have some fermenters that have um, a spigot on it that I can draw from without you know having to open it up. I, I feel like if I put it in a keg, I want to maximize the amount of that beer at that target that I have. So if I can pull just a little bit off from a spigot instead of running it through a line and into a glass and then that's just a quirk of my uh, thinking I, more than uh, a process uh, improvement. <laughs> well, if you've spent any time reading about homebrewing on the Internet, you'll know there's more than one right way to do things. And there's lots of opinions on, on everything about the right way to do well, things. Well, this, this might make me sound like a, a, a tremendous lush, but sometimes when I, I brew a beer that I like, I'm thinking – I only have five gallons of this. Sure. <laughs> and that, that sounds terrible to say, uh, you know, that I'm going to drink five gallons of, of beer, but 
It happens. It happens. What the hell else do you do? <laughs> Sprinkle your yard. <laughs> That's true. I, I understand where you're coming from there. You you know, sometimes a beer tastes pretty good, but you know it'll get better. And if it's too easily accessible, you might squander a little bit of it when it's not reached its peak yet. Well, I found it. I when I talk to people that aren't home brewers and aren't super into to craft beer, and they say, "Well, you know, you make five gallons at a time. What do you do with it all?" And I say, "Well, I drink it." And the look on their faces, <laughs> you kind of surprising sometimes. <laughs> now, come on, over in Germany, they would serve this in uh, yeah. at least a half liter, if not a full liter uh, glass. And so, you know, when you count it that way, it's only you know, twenty five glasses or so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's not that much beer, especially you figure. Yeah, even to put it to their terms, like four 12-packs. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure they go through that in the summer. Let's say for a relatively new home brewer and they're going to make lagers, what would be just your, your basic tips? First of all, I would stress don't hesitate. I would say just give it a shot. If you got a cold yeah. basement, you should be able to get that thing to ferment. And then now, you know, lagering, you can probably try to find a fridge space to throw it in. I would say don't hesitate. Give it a shot. Try it. But from a tip standpoint, though, being able to control the temperature and manipulate that temperature um, is critical. There's a ton of how-tos on the Internet as far as I built my own temperature box controller for, for a refrigerator. It's not hard to do. It's not expensive. Um, it, it's just more do you have the space and to have an extra refrigerator. You, if you can do that, you can, you can make really good lagers really easily. I mean, that's actually good advice for, for most beers, actually, because the fermentation is so important. Maybe one quick tip I'll throw in there is always a good idea with a lager, especially to make a starter, because you want a lot of yeast and you don't yeah. want to you don't want to stress the yeast by under pitching for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I've learned that just making a starter almost with every batch of beer, regardless of it's a lager or ale, is a good thing to do, but definitely with a, a lager. Yeah. And good ingredients, of course. Yeah, good ingredients, and I think all good tips, really, but there's so many recipes out there accessible and books to read, so you should be able to figure out a recipe fairly easily just by a Google search. If you're a cost-conscious brewer, the lagers are the cheapest beer you can brew. You can buy quality ingredients, it doesn't take a ton, and you're not throwing 10 pounds of hops into it. (laughs) Now, that's a good point. That's true. And if you can reuse the yeast, even more so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think probably on the second generation, if you timed your brewing right, you'd have really good yeast. Yeah. Well, Mark, it's about time to wrap this up, you think? I think so. So it's been great. Jamie, thanks for joining us for the tail end of this and also for enjoying our and your home brews with well, us. I love what you do, guys. Thank you. All right. Prost. 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 As the motorcycle hauls away. <laughs> <laughs>